This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is April the 22nd. My name is John Dunn, and this episode, I'm going to start with a joke. Why are cats hard to beat at video games? Because they have nine lives. I know, that's silly. But that moment, me telling the joke, which I enjoyed, and hopefully you enjoyed hearing the joke, maybe smiled or more likely groaned. Okay, so why am I telling you jokes? Well, that one little moment in time enjoying something, even as dumb as a knee-slapping dad joke, can boost our emotional well-being. And we need all of that that we can get. According to a 2015 study published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, animal rescue workers, people in this field saving lives, the suicide rate is 5.3 in 1 million workers. And what does that number mean? Is it a lot? Well, it's the highest suicide rate amongst all American workers. And it's only matched by firefighters and police officers. And let's not forget that this epidemic has only been exacerbated by the last year. So here we are in April of 2021 at a crucial time with the number of vaccines administered continuing to rise. Life will be returning to our new normal, as we like to say, and that in and of itself brings challenges. And that's why the guest for this episode is someone who has the skill and knowledge we need not just at a time like this, but at any time. Before we hear from that expert, Meryl Schwartz, I want to let you know that I have the power to put 10 bucks in your pocket because registration is now open for the upcoming Best Friends National Conference. And as a podcast listener, you get a discount. I'm going to give you a promo code. And when you enter that, when you register, you will only pay $45 for this year's conference. It's June 23rd and 24th. It's all virtual, but I promise it will be the furthest thing from two days of boring Zoom presentations. I've seen what's coming, and I'm incredibly excited for what's in store, and you really don't want to miss it. So now to that 10 bucks thing, go to bestfriends.org conference. That's easy enough, bestfriends.org conference. And the promo code is podcast but it's all lowercase. Remember that, it won't work unless it's all lowercase. Again, the promo code is podcast. Go to bestfriends.org slash conference. Okay, and just very quickly, what does your dog and your phone have in common? They both have caller ID. That was a good one. I know you smiled on that one. All right, here's my conversation with Meryl Schwartz. I am a life coach and I specialize in compassion fatigue and in ADHD work. And I got here by, I was a teacher in my very early days. So I always had interest in that. I moved into the corporate America world for many, many, many years. And what I liked best about corporate America was leading my staff and helping my staff and coaching my staff. So when I was ready to leave corporate America, going back to a coaching world was the next obvious thing for me. And so that was 11 years ago. And I've been coaching ever since and loving it. 
Meryl, how bad is the emotional well-being, compassion fatigue issue in animal welfare from your perspective? I mean, you have this rich background working with folks from all sorts of areas, different professions. But when you started working with those in the animal welfare field, were you surprised at the state of this situation? I was and continue to be blown away. It's very, very different. And the things that people in animal welfare see and deal with every day, honestly, there are times when I'm sitting with somebody and I will think to myself, I can't, I can't listen to this. This is too hard. This is too awful. And then I say to myself, if they can live it, I can witness it. So yes, I was totally unprepared. And it's very, very difficult. And that's one of the reasons that I think that the work that I do with the animal welfare organizations is so important. And my goal is to give them enough support so they can continue to do what they do. You know, what I think is so interesting to me through all of this is that, you know, we know it's an issue and we want to fix it. We just did a very, very small survey of podcast listeners and of about 15 different topic areas we asked them to rank, emotional well-being was right at the top next to cat life-saving and community-supported sheltering. But here we are, I would say, generally still not dealing with it. Why? Why do you think we have this acceptance and understanding of the importance, but we're still not putting in the effort that we need to to really deal with it? You know, it comes from deeply embedded beliefs in society that taking care of yourself is somehow selfish. And although attitudes are changing in regard to that, it takes a really long time to turn an elephant around, right? And the thought that we are not almost allowed to take care of ourselves, that it's selfish. It's selfish for us to say no. It's selfish for us to say we need time for ourselves. It's selfish for us to say we don't want to cook dinner tonight because we're too tired and you know the husband or the children or the partner gets upset. Those things are so deeply embedded in us that we can say, yes, emotional well-being is important. But until we start to really take those components apart and understand what emotional well-being is, we're not going to turn that elephant around. So people are giving lip service. Yes, emotional well-being is important. But no, I could never say no if he asked me to do such and such, right? So there's that conflict between what we're saying up here and what we're doing emotionally. I, this is a field full of superheroes, people who day in and day out save lives. Like, just think about that statement for a minute. Like, how many people can say they get up every morning and save lives? And I wonder sometimes if there isn't a bit of that, and I want to make sure I frame this correctly, because I don't want it to sound as if I'm saying that, you know, people in the field aren't superheroes because they are. But I do wonder if there's an element of like, I am tough. I don't need help. Superman didn't go to therapy, or at least I don't think he did. I don't know. I'm more of a Marvel guy. But do you know what I mean? And that is the other piece of it. It And it's not even a conscious decision. I think that, you know, the people that go to the front lines every day and people in general who are in a helping profession, they might know that they need support. They might know that they need help. They might know that they need to take care of themselves better, but they can't 
wrap their heads around that. It, it does not fit with their image of themselves. And that's actually how the field of compassion fatigue was kind of born, was that therapists started to notice this trend with people in the helping professions that they felt as if they should be able to handle everything. And there's a great expression that someone came up with. And she says something like, you know, being in these helping professions and expecting not to be touched by it is like expecting to go out in the rain without an umbrella and not get wet. You know, and when you look at that analogy, it's like, of course, you're going to get wet when you go out in the rain, right? Well, of course, you're going to be affected when you're seeing things every day that are so difficult to see. But we don't get that. People in helping professions don't get that. Uh, Meryl, once upon a time, I used to be a radio news reporter, and that job, whew, we, we say this horrible thing, and it's, but it's true. If it bleeds, it leads. So my days were spent 100 miles a day in a news vehicle going from a murder to a car wreck to a house fire. I think back now to the coping mechanisms that we used, and a lot of it was just sort of camaraderie, like we had each other, the other reporters, you know, we were cracking jokes that, you know, looking back were terrible, I mean, just poor taste. And I'm not going to lie, I drank a lot. I mean, I was 22, 23, 24. And, you know, looking back, it just, it wasn't good. And that was how you survived it. But there would come a time, and maybe there did for you, where there's not a shell hard enough to contain everything that you've seen. So at some point, that last thing pokes through that hard shell. And that, that's when people get in trouble emotionally. Totally. Totally. And I'm thankful daily that 14 years ago, I came to Best Friends. You know, I think for me, what the difference is, is, you know, that reporter job, I could leave. I didn't feel compelled to cover the news. It was a good career. You know, I now realize it wasn't my calling. And if anything, it was sort of like an abusive relationship. And I was able to break away. But this work, we don't want to break away. And we shouldn't be pushing people away. People shouldn't feel like they have to leave the work, the field, to just get relief. This is absolutely a calling. So really, the options are slim. It's that we have to stay healthy emotionally. We, we have to do something about it. That's right. And so, you know, the antidote to that kind of, you know, what we'll call compassion fatigue, that feeling of exhaustion, that feeling of, I, I can't take care of another animal, I can't cry over another animal. That's always going to be there to a certain degree. And the antidote is self-care. And that is where a lot of us in the helping professions and animal welfare in particular fall down because we don't take the time for self-care. And it's the, the, the difficulty is compounded by the fact that a lot of times, I hear this over and over again, when people in animal welfare do have a day off, they are so exhausted that all they can actually do is sleep through that day and binge on Netflix. So even when they have the time to do some things that are good for themselves, they don't have the energy. And one of the, I guess, one of the points I would like to make is that self-care has to be an ongoing thing. Now, 
it can be little ways. And this is something else that people don't understand. You don't need to clear out a half a day to go to a spa to do good self-care. If you only have five minutes, you can do things in five minutes. If you apply them consistently, you're sort of building your reserves through self-care and they'll be there to serve you when you need them. So one of the things that I want to emphasize to the listeners is, you know, take baby steps, even if it means sitting outside for five minutes with noise canceling headphones on and reading a book, even just that is amazingly refreshing. So don't feel like it has to be these long, complicated, I'm going to get in my car and go camping for a week. It, it, it doesn't have to be like that. It can be little doses and then they feed on each other. Uh, Meryl, I do feel a tiny bit attacked. Thankfully, the listener cannot see me right now, but I am sitting here. <laughs> I've not shaved today. I'm in my uh, worn out and uh, now pretty frumpy best friend sweatshirt, a hat. And yes, I do like to hunker down and watch Netflix pretty much as often as I can. So let me say this to you about that. <laughs> and I always say this when I do my workshops. If you want to do that every once in a while, be my guest. I do it myself. If every day off is spent in your ratty old best friend's t-shirt and watching Netflix all day, that's not good for you. So indulge once a month, not every day off. Does that make sense? I mean, of course you're totally right. But I would, and, and this is not meant as a counterpoint necessarily, Meryl, but I, I was on with my therapist recently, and she asked me if I had picked up any new hobbies during the pandemic, and I, I, I haven't. I think about it all the time, but I never do anything. I never act on it. I don't go out and buy a piano like one of the producers of the podcast just did because you want to learn the piano. It's like mind blowing to me. It's amazing. But just even the thought of picking up a new hobby, whatever that may be, it's so overwhelming to me. You know, in the time off that I do have, that anything I do that would be essentially like more work when I could just spend that time decompressing watching Netflix. Okay. I am so glad you said all of that. So now I'm going to gently and firmly turn you around a little bit because this is such a common misconception, okay? That's not what self-care is. Self-care isn't finding new hobbies because you think you should. So let me give you some examples of true self-care, okay? So one thing, every day, take one minute to think about something that you were grateful for that day. Now there's a lot of chatter about gratitude and it's become very cliche. So I want to clarify that, you know, gratitude just in your head is not going to do any good. But if you take a moment and really stop and think about something you were grateful for that day, that will get into you in a way that's different from intellectually. So you want to really like integrate it into your emotional space. Okay. So that's one minute. Another thing, get outside. Get outside for five minutes just to enjoy the air and the, the sunshine. Another thing, what am I doing to move my body? Again, you don't want to go to the gym and I don't want to go to the gym. But in between calls, I take the minute or two. I have some little five-pound weights in my office. In between calls, I do a couple of curls. 
or I do a couple of planks. So the common misconception about self-care is what you said earlier, like, oh my God, I have to have a hobby. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you totally don't. There are so many little things. Eating a healthy meal, that's good self-care. I have a million examples I could give you. Well, listen, I hear you loud and clear, but you know, all of those things are essentially work. Cooking a meal, great example. I happen to love to cook, but the time and energy these days, it just isn't there for me. So for people who maybe don't cook at all, man, that's a lot to ask. So whether it's cooking or a walk or whatever, you know, it's it it's looking for energy that just doesn't exist. Well. Let's look at that. See, I think that you're making it harder than it really is. Eating a healthy meal can be cutting an apple into quarters and putting some peanut butter on it. You don't have to be able to cook to do that, right? And getting outside, you can literally stand at your door for a few minutes and listen to a podcast, but just get some nice air on you, get some sunshine on you. So you can make these things as easy or difficult as you want them to be. But look at the big picture sort of conceptually, you know, things like noticing the beauty around you and really taking that moment to notice it, not just rush through it on your way to the parking lot, on your way to get your car, but consciously slow your steps down to Notice and enjoy those moments between your house and your car where there's nothing pulling at you. For those 10 seconds, there's nothing pulling at you. Those little things don't take any work on your part. It's much more of a mindset kind of an activity. But if you start doing three or four of those things a day that take no extra time out of your day, you're building your resilience. You're building your sense of taking care of yourself. You're building your sense of being able to count on yourself to take care of yourself. All baby steps, nothing big. You can do that. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you, John, to take a 30-day challenge and do one small act of self-care every day. I'll even send you a list of self-care activities that take no time. Well, you better hurry up with that follow-up because when we hang up on this call, I'm going to block your number and email so you can't badger me about <laughs> getting up and, and moving my completely inactive body. <laughs> I will find you. <laughs> so much of this for me is really just being aware, mindful of what is happening and being mindful of the choices that I'm making. It's changing your mindset. And, you know, that's a lot what self-care is all about. Even to use the example of the healthy meal, and like even if you don't like to cook or if you don't want to cook much, you can make a salad. Instead of looking at it as a chore, you can look at it as this is, I'm carving out time for myself. I'm carving out time to take care of myself. This is, this is, a nice thing I'm doing for me. And suddenly your whole mindset shifts. You know, there's a man named Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese monk. And he has a saying, if you don't like to wash the dishes, you have never washed the dishes. And he has an essay about that where he basically says, 
we all view washing the dishes as something to get through on our way to the next thing. And, you know, people hate washing the dishes and you can use any example you want, making the bed, doing the laundry, it doesn't matter. But if you slow down and stop and just look at it as right now, this is a moment in my life where I'm washing the dishes and doesn't the warm water feel nice or, you know, I'm folding the laundry. Isn't it nice to have clean laundry? If you slow yourself down and stop thinking about the next thing and just be with what you are in the moment, it changes the whole experience. So we've talked about the personal responsibility piece, but I'm interested in your recommendations for organizations, for leadership. What needs to happen from them, do you think? I, you know, what I hope is that more organizations begin to carve out almost required self-care time for people you know, insist that people take their PTO. One of the things I encounter a lot when I talk to people in animal welfare, especially the people on the front lines, is that they'll say, really down to a person, I don't feel like I can take my PTO because if I take it, then my team is shorthanded. So that sense of responsibility to others and to the animals, of course, sort of overrides their willingness to do what's best for themselves. So I think it's really important that leadership take a firm stand on that and actually keep track of it. And if somebody hasn't taken their PTO, to go to them and say, you have to take X amount of time. You have to take a certain amount of time for yourself. So that's one thing leadership can do. Another thing that leadership can do is to make people like me available, to make, you know, or to implement, uh, you know, the EAP programs that some organizations have and really getting the support for the people that they need. And a third thing that leadership can do is encourage employees to like buddy up, give them time to talk to each other. So often, another thing that I hear is, and this was even before COVID, when people were really together on site, I would hear, I don't know my coworkers because we're always so busy that we're like ships passing in the night. We don't have time to talk. So it would be nice, you know, in a perfect world to create opportunities for people to connect with each other on the job so that it diminishes the feeling of isolation that so many people have in animal welfare. So those are some things that leadership can do and should be doing. And, you know, kudos for those that are. I know Best Friends is very encouraging of making sure that their people take time for themselves and, and take care of themselves. But in the end, it is still a personal responsibility. In the end, we all have to learn how to take care of ourselves. And we learn we have to learn how to do that and balance it against the competing priorities of taking care of everybody else. That feeling of being unable to take PTO you know, it might be a true, it might actually be true. You might not have a backup and that's uh, definitely something leadership can fix. But that sort of mindset of I can't take PTO, it's almost like a negative superhero trait. I'm a superhero, but only I can do X. No one can do this except for me. And I don't think that's just about PTO. It's something I've personally seen with a founder run organizations, not best friends. Uh, but you know, that sort of, I'm the only one who knows how to do something, budget, clean candles, whatever. It's just, boy, I mean, it's just really bad thinking, isn't it? And it's not just in animal welfare. It permeates many of the helping professions, medicine, therapy, you know, this sense of my clients can't do without me for a week, so I can't go on vacation. 
it is wrong thinking. Like most of the time, the world won't fall apart if we're not there for a minute or two or a day or a week. So we do need to correct that kind of thinking. Again, lots of that correction can come as people come together to share these feelings more. One of the hallmarks of compassion fatigue is the feeling of isolation, the feeling that it's all on your shoulders. Part of that is because people have shame around feeling like they need help or feeling like they're getting burnt out. So they don't talk to each other about it. So they carry this burden all alone and they feel all alone in it. By encouraging people to talk to each other and form relationships beyond just, hey, you know, where's the dog's leash? Or, you know, hey, can we find the food bowl? But to really get to know each other a little bit, people will feel less isolated and it will mitigate that feeling of I'm the only one that can do this because they will begin to trust their fellow workers more, right? So you see how it's not simple. All of these things sort of hinge on each other. So you, you've got to take a multi-pronged approach to emotional well-being. There have to be changes in the workplace, yes, but there also have to be changes in our own ability and willingness to take care of ourselves. And those things have to go hand in hand. Let's talk about the last year because we often talk about silver linings and what COVID has done positively for life-saving, you know, the public stepping up to foster the progress towards community-supported sheltering. And then, you know, we have the tragic murder of George Floyd, what that has done to bring diversity, equity, and inclusion issues to the forefront. So if there is a silver lining here the last year, maybe we have turned a corner on emotional well-being, this issue And hopefully we'll see organizations taking this seriously, implementing programs and solutions in a sustained way. Well, that's the key, you know, and and, and I think it will be in a sustained way. You know, I'm seeing changes in the organizations I've worked with that are coming about as a result of everything that's gone on in the last year. And the changes that they're making are not going to flip back. That, you know, they're making permanent changes. They're creating space for people to talk to each other. They're creating an environment where more than one opinion is acceptable. So people will start hopefully feeling less separation. And again, that's one of the keys to well-being is feeling connection. So if organ- the more organizations can create that and sustain it, then you're going to see an uptick in optimism. So vaccines are getting into more and more arms of Americans. I'm getting my second uh, this week. And I see people hitting the road again for work travel. I mean, we're quickly, as a Michigander where cases are skyrocketing, we're probably maybe a little too quickly (laughs) trying to move on from this. I'm just wondering what you're hearing from your clients. I mean, is there a concern about getting back safely? You know, that's not coming up. What's coming up more is people are concerned about how they're going to return to normal. Like I'm not hearing people saying, oh, you know, now I can just go out and party because I've been vaccinated. I am hearing people say, wow, I've gotten so used to working from home. I'm not sure I want to go back into an office. 
or I'm hearing people say, wow, you know, it's been really nice not having to spend money going out to eat. I've been able to save so much. And I realize that that's something I want to do. And how am I going to now say to people, well, I really don't want to spend money on going out to eat. Can we go for a walk in the park instead? So those are the concerns that I'm hearing from people. And what I'm helping people work through is how can you be authentically you with the new knowledge that you may have gained about yourself during this last year? How can you communicate that effectively? How can you stand up for what you now want? How can you compromise when that makes sense? And how how can you reenter the world in a way that feels authentic and comfortable for you? People are struggling with that. I actually took one of those surveys uh, about your career and what would be best. And the result was, uh, it it said, uh, I should just lay around all day and watch Netflix. Well, then there we are. We have come full circle. I think you should get some some bonbons or some Haagen-Dazs ice cream and really go to town with Netflix. I appreciate you taking the time, Meryl, to come on the podcast and chat about this. So before we call it a day, just give me one last tip on the, the way out. The main thing I really want to emphasize, and I said it earlier, but it's a good standalone, is slow down. Just slow down. Everything will still be there five minutes from now. Try not to always be functioning at that edge of urgency, especially with the kind of jobs that people in animal welfare do when there is that very real sense of urgency in their workday. Take a moment to consciously slow yourself down. Allow space to notice what's good around you. The producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta, My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.